Hey, it's time to start making plans to attend the premier true crime event of the year, CrimeCon UK. CrimeCon is the world's number one true crime event, and if you're fascinated by all things true crime, you won't want to miss it. CrimeCon UK will be held on June 10th and 11th at the Leonardo Royal Hotel Tower Bridge in London. What is CrimeCon? CrimeCon is part education, part advocacy, part discovery, and 100% fun when you attend with your true crime obsessed friends. Don't have true crime obsessed friends or family? No problem. You'll find your tribe at CrimeCon UK. Attendees say that CrimeCon was not only the best weekend of their entire year, but they left with a great experience and new friends. Over CrimeCon weekend, you'll get up close and personal with true crime experts, learn from advocates for justice, and rub elbows with true crime stars and celebs, like documentary filmmakers, investigators, and podcasters involved with some of the most talked about true crime cases today. In the breakout sessions, you will delve deeper into cases and hear real-life stories directly from survivors and victims' families. And you won't want to miss one of the most popular features of CrimeCon, Podcast Row, where you'll meet all your favorite true crime podcasters and YouTubers from around the world. I'll be there again to meet you all, and I can't wait. So get your tickets today and mark your calendars for June 10th and 11th in London. Go to crimecon.co.uk to get more information and register. Use my offer code onceupon for discounted tickets. CrimeCon UK, the ultimate true crime event. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. This episode contains explicit language. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. In this month's series, I'll share stories about some of the very few women sentenced to death. We'll explore what made their crime so abhorrent, discover the factors that led these women to kill, and determine what influenced the jury's decision to send them to death row. In this episode, you'll hear the story of one of only three women currently sitting on death row in Arizona. With four marriages behind her, a criminal record, and a history of childhood abuse and violence, the perpetrator developed extremist views fueled by conspiracy theories, which ultimately culminated in a crime that took the lives of two innocent people and forever changed that of a third. This is the story of Shauna Ford. Shauna Ford was born on December 6, 1967, in Everett, Washington State, to Rena Cottle. The family into which Shauna was born was already a large and complicated one. She was the seventh of nine children born to five different fathers. Right from the start, the infant experienced a traumatic home life. Child Protective Services removed Shauna from her mother's care, but the baby was eventually returned to Rena. When the baby was just 10 months old, Rena gave Shauna to a relative to raise. Rena explained that her boyfriend didn't care to have the infant around. Sadly, an abusive and dysfunctional home environment was a generational pattern in Shauna's family tree. The relative who took in the 10-month-old baby had previously molested Rena as a child. Rena's involvement in her daughter's life was unstable at best. 
She was in and out of young Shauna's life in between a series of short-term relationships. The constant revolving door of Rena's partners further contributed to Shauna's unstable home environment. She suffered mental and physical abuse throughout her childhood by most of her caregivers, including her foster parents. At one point, Shauna was also sexually abused by an uncle. Many years later, her son described Rena and Rena's father, Merrill, who was Shauna's grandfather, as, quote, very troubled people, stating that Merrill was a known liar with no regard for the truth. When Shauna was five years old, she was adopted by another couple, Jeep and Patty Brightham, moving to her seventh household. Jeep worked for the aircraft manufacturer Boeing, while Patty worked at a local bowling alley. What should have been a fresh start for the green-eyed, brown-haired young Shauna was anything but. While Patty was at work in the late afternoons, Jeep routinely used this opportunity to sexually abuse his adopted daughter. His inappropriate affection for Shauna stemmed from, in his words, that the child was, quote, clean. He took her with him on car trips where she was made to sit naked in the passenger seat. For Shauna, no matter with whom she was living, it was a constant merry-go-round of trauma, powerlessness, and abuse. Never feeling safe or protected by the adults in her life, Shauna sought solace through drugs to escape her pain. At age 10, she began smoking pot and would soon progress to cocaine use and other illegal drugs. By the age of 11, Shauna was charged with her first felony. The antisocial role modeling Shauna had been exposed to resulted in behavioral issues and poor relationship and social skills. So perhaps it's no surprise that she became a juvenile offender, committing petty thefts and burglaries. One of her first crimes was stealing a diamond necklace valued at several thousand dollars from the home of a friend of her adopted mother, Patty. Before she reached her teen years, Shauna had been abandoned by her mother, Rena, several times, was constantly moved from one abusive home to another, and had been sexually abused by two men. The desperate preteen decided it was safer to fend for herself by living on the streets of Seattle, where she resorted to sex work to survive, despite its many risks. Shauna was well known to Sonomish County law enforcement, with juvenile convictions for felonies, prostitution, and other street crimes. By this time, she was also battling drug addiction, abusing benzodiazepines and narcotic pain relievers like Halcyon, Darvacet, Valium, and Tylenol with codeine. She shoplifted from department stores and was eventually remanded into state custody after a burglary incident. Shauna's abusive and chaotic childhood resulted in her developing a personality disorder with narcissistic tendencies, which would not be diagnosed until she reached adulthood. As a side note, during her trial, Shauna's defense investigator and mitigation specialist, Margaret DeFrank, would cite studies conducted by the U.S. Department of Justice that indicated that the brain chemistry of children who endure poverty, abandonment, and abuse before age six is significantly altered. Essentially, what the study states is that the more trauma a child suffers, the more significant the impact on their psychosocial and cognitive development. DeFrank testified that by Shauna's 13th birthday, she'd already lived through more trauma than most people experience in their entire lives. During the 1990s, Shauna replicated the pattern demonstrated by her mother, marrying and divorcing three times. In her 20s, she gave birth to three children. A son and a daughter survived, but a third child died as a result of sudden infant death syndrome. 
Shauna's half-brother Merrill Metzger later told Seattle Weekly reporter Rick Anderson that Shauna instilled the same defiance of the law that she'd learned in her own children, saying, quote, she taught them both how to shoplift and also used them to distract people while she shoplifted, end quote. Shauna's adult worldview was one with no respect for the law, and she relied entirely on her own stunted survival skills for herself and her children. Yet she simultaneously had a strong drive to belong and a need to seek out justice. In her 30s, Shauna found an outlet for both of these needs in the form of vigilante group membership, which had begun to proliferate nationwide in the 2000s. Following the devastating terrorist attacks on the United States on September 11, 2001, the government, under the administration of President George W. Bush, increased border security in response to growing fears around undocumented immigrants. Two years later, in 2003, amidst a raft of immigration reform, a new federal agency was established. The Department of Homeland Security incorporated the INS, U.S. Customs Service, and almost 20 other agencies. At the same time, President Bush's proposed temporary guest worker program, targeting non-U.S. citizens and those living in the country as undocumented immigrants, was met with strong opposition in Congress, which endorsed a plan to strengthen the U.S. Border Patrol. In 2004, the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act authorized 10,000 new border security agents, effectively doubling the patrol by 2010. This new legislation soon led to broader policy developments for the Department of Homeland Security and the Secure Border Initiative. By 2005, the U.S. Border Patrol had launched Operation Streamline with a range of hardline zero-tolerance policies focused specifically on the U.S.-Mexico border. These policies were solely designed to prosecute and deport undocumented immigrants through an expedited process with little to no room for appeal or recourse on U.S. soil. During this time, there was a renewed resurgence of U.S. nationalism, driven by fear and prejudice. Advocacy groups like No Mas Muerte, or No More Deaths, did their best to aid undocumented Mexican immigrants in their perilous journey by reducing the number of fatalities in the desert near the U.S.-Mexico border. But anti-immigration sentiment was quickly gaining momentum. The federal government's policies were all the justification militias, vigilantes, and white supremacist groups needed to begin renewed recruitment efforts for these nationalistic and racist sentiments. These groups experienced a sudden rise in popularity as like-minded individuals sought to band together against those they perceived as a threat to national security. One of these groups was called the Minuteman Project, a collective of over 1,000 volunteers. Minuteman members headed out into the desert in groups, stationing themselves along the southern U.S. border. They were on the lookout for Mexican nationals and other immigrants attempting to enter the U.S. illegally, acting as self-appointed eyes and ears for border authorities. In 2006, following the introduction of the Secure Fence Act, the U.S. government commenced construction of 650 miles of fencing along the border, a stark indicator of the changes which were afoot. Thirty-eight-year-old Shauna Ford was fully immersed in the anti-immigrant cause and was a dedicated member of the Minuteman Project. Her membership in the vigilante group gave her purpose. She was 100% committed to the group's mission. 
After surviving abuse, trauma, and victimization at the hands of her family and caregivers, she felt a sense of empowerment as part of the collective, and her role as a spokesperson added to her sense of purpose and power. In 2006, she announced her appointment as media director for the group's Washington State chapter, telling the Herald, quote, I will be there to bring attention to Americans that our borders are wide open and we need to secure them, end quote. Shauna was initially welcomed with open arms. Her enthusiasm and dedication to the cause were precisely the qualities that the Minuteman Project wanted and needed in their members, and her commitment was an excellent example of the zeal they wished to inspire in their members. Jim Gilchrist, head of the Minuteman Project, described Shauna as, quote, a stoic struggler who has chosen to put country, community, and a yearning for a civilized society ahead of avarice and self-glorifying ego, end quote. At the same time, Shauna was running her own business, a beauty salon on Colby Avenue in downtown Everett. It seemed like things were finally looking up for the woman who had been searching for acceptance and belonging all her life. But in 2007, less than a year after joining the group, Shauna Ford was asked to leave. Her fellow members were beginning to question her honesty and integrity. The group's leaders started to sense that she was more trouble than she was worth. Ford demonstrated an inability to follow orders. In the end, she was considered too unstable to continue her association with the Minutemen, who distanced themselves from her. Once again, she was rejected and cast adrift. But Ford was no longer a frightened and vulnerable preteen on the streets of Seattle. Now she had experienced a sense of power and decided to double down on what she considered her righteous cause and true mission in life. Shauna Ford wasn't going to take the rejection lying down this time. In response to being kicked out of the Minuteman Project, she created her own offshoot vigilante group, the Minuteman American Defense, or MAD. She was open about why she believed she'd been pushed out of the group. It was her assertion that as a strong female and a born leader, she was a victim of rivalry and jealousy, predicated by men who felt threatened by her strength. The goal and principles of Ford's newly formed group remained the same as that of the original Minuteman Project. It remained an underground network of volunteers who conducted border surveillance in the desert to prevent drug smuggling and stop immigrants from entering the U.S. illegally. The difference was, this time, Shauna was in charge. Having shed her role as a victim for one of an enforcer, Ford was no longer taking orders from anyone. It was she who would make decisions for herself and her entire fledgling vigilante group. In a July 2009 interview, Ford's half-brother Merrill told Seattle Weekly, She told me she planned to start an underground militia. She said she would rob Mexican drug dealers and steal their money and drugs. She talked about a business in Arizona that kept 40 grand under the counter to cash illegals' checks, and she said she was going to rob that. Ford started a website for the Splinter Group, including a blog entitled Shauna's Corner, where she bragged about her new role with narcissistic swagger. In one post, she wrote, quote, See, there is a new white girl in town. This one is not afraid and will not tolerate this, not while I'm on post. We can all live in fear, or we can stand strong and tall and look the criminals in the eye and say no more. I did not get involved in this movement to be a wallflower. As most of you know me, I'm a hands-on kind of gal, end quote. 
When asked what level of involvement her group had with law enforcement agencies, Ford explained their participation in a process called after-action reports. This involved reporting to an unidentified former employee of the CIA, she alleged. One of MAD's recruits, who took on the role of operations director, was 32-year-old Jason Eugene Bush, who went by the nickname Gunny. Despite having no official service record, Bush claimed to have been a U.S. military veteran. It's unclear when the pair met, but like Ford, Bush had a criminal record going back to his teens, with arrests and convictions for burglary, theft, and assault. He quickly became known as Ford's number two guy. Throughout the spring of 2007, Ford was heavily invested in her Minuteman activities. She participated in an anti-immigration rally in downtown Everett, joined by 100 people and a sizable number of protesters. That summer, she announced her candidacy for Everett City Council, with a platform that promised to ensure local law enforcement had full access to records that would determine the immigration status of anyone they suspected of entering the country illegally. January 15, 2008, Ford was discovered lying in a North Everett alley with apparent gunshot wounds. The 40-year-old initially claimed that she was attacked in retaliation over MADS activities identifying and reporting criminal groups operating on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico border. However, she also suggested that she'd been targeted for assisting police in breaking up a group engaged in the theft of firearms, a sting which ultimately saw her son Devin sent to prison. Seven months later in July 2008, Ford and her fourth husband, John, divorced. John was quietly getting on with his life following the split, but on December 22nd, a stranger broke into his home, shooting him multiple times. He survived the attack, but would never publicly comment on who was behind the shooting. Just a week after the incident, Ford also filed a report claiming she'd been the victim of a brutal attack. She described how she'd been assaulted and raped by a group of unnamed, quote, Hispanic gangsters. An investigation was conducted, but police failed to find any leads substantiating her claims, and the case was closed due to insufficient evidence. Ford continued to pour her time and energy into MAD, but their volunteer activities required capital they did not have. In the spring of 2009, she devised a new and criminal fundraising plan for the organization that now consisted of 14 members. Ford claimed that Raul Jr. Flores, whom she identified as a known local area drug dealer, kept a large amount of cash at his home in Erivaca, a small town in Pima County, Arizona. Arivaca was located about 60 miles south of Tucson and a mere 10 miles north of the Mexican border. Ford said there would be drugs and a considerable amount of cash at Flores' home, which she claimed was a safe house, used by a Mexican drug cartel to stash money, drugs, and firearms. Ford had made this claim two years earlier to a vigilante group member named Ron Weedow, whom she'd met on a border watch in Arizona. In 2007, she proposed a meeting between Widow and other members to discuss a plan to rob the home in order to fund Minuteman activities. He reluctantly agreed, but invited along an acquaintance named Bob Copley, whom had previously worked as an informant for the FBI. In early May 2009, Ford traveled to Aurora, Colorado, to meet with Widow and Copley at a truck stop. She told the men she estimated at least $2 million in cash was kept in the home, and claimed she already had the property under surveillance. Excusing himself early, Weedell left the meeting, knowing he had enough information to alert the authorities about the seriousness of Ford's intentions. 
While in town, she'd also use the opportunity to meet with other MAD members, hoping to recruit them specifically to help her carry out the robbery. But looking to source accomplices closer to where the attack was planned, Ford met with two local drug dealers, 42-year-old Albert Yaxiola and 38-year-old Oin Oakstar. Both were familiar with the area and had already been formulating their own vendetta against Raul Flores when approached by Ford. The pair had a long-standing rivalry with Flores due to their shared involvement in the local marijuana trade. Oakstar was a native of Arivaca and had been involved in the drug trade since the age of 14. He'd racked up previous arrests and multiple felony charges, was prohibited from owning firearms, and spent time in federal prison on drug charges. Albert Gaxiola was Oakstar's right-hand man in their lucrative operation running drugs from Arivaca into Tucson. Gaxiola was eager to enlist in Ford's plan to hit Flores' house. Gaxiola had been involved in a previous theft of hundreds of pounds of marijuana from an abandoned trailer that was allegedly property of Flores' drug smuggling operation. Gaxiola was in fear that Flores' cartel would retaliate against him, so he viewed Ford's plan as a way to take out an enemy who may be gunning for him. By late May, everything was set in motion. Ford's operation director, 34-year-old Jason Bush, was also on board to join the group in the planned home invasion. On the morning of May 29, 2009, Ford, Oakstar, and Jason Bush drove by the Flores' residence in Arivaca in their teal-colored Astro van on a preliminary reconnaissance mission. Raul's wife, 31-year-old Gina Gonzalez, and their 9-year-old daughter, Brisenia, were observed in the front yard. Gina would later tell police that she saw the teal van casing the neighborhood that morning. As Ford, Bush, and Gaxiola were readying themselves to return to the Flores' home that evening, Oakstar pulled out of the plan, claiming he was too drunk to participate. Despite the unanticipated setback, the group set off. They were dressed in camouflage gear, and Bush had blackened his face. It was past midnight and entering into the early morning hours of May 30th. Ford approached the Flores' residence and abruptly banged on the front door. She began shouting, awakening the family inside. Flores came to the door, and Ford pushed her way inside, brandishing a gun. Gina Flores was seated on the couch next to her sleeping daughter, Brisenia. Ford ordered Flores to sit on the couch as well. The three armed strangers who'd entered their home in military-type clothing claimed to be law enforcement looking for fugitives who had escaped from custody. Raul Flores demanded to know what was happening, but Jason Bush replied, Don't take this personally, but this bullet has your name on it. Flores jumped to his feet and lunged at Bush in an attempt to defend himself and his family. Bush fired his weapon, hitting Flores, and then turned the gun on his wife, shooting her twice. Gina Flores fell to the floor, but was still alive. Her survival instinct kicked in quickly, and she decided the best chance she had to stay alive was to play dead. She prayed that the intruders would leave and the nightmare would soon end. Raul Flores, also still alive, shouted at Bush to stop, but was shot again by his assailant and was killed instantly. Despite the carnage that had just unfolded in front of her, Ford didn't protest or intervene. This would be used as evidence later by the prosecution that the group had been intent on violence and not just robbery. The terrified child had woken and witnessed both of her parents shot in front of her. As she cried and shook with fear still on the couch, Ford called out to Gaxiola, 
that the coast was clear. After he entered the house, Ford left the living room to rummage through the couple's bedroom. Brisenia, still trying to make sense of the nightmare that had unfolded in front of her, asked Jason Bush, why did you shoot my dad? Bush replied, everything is going to be okay. Nobody will hurt you. This couldn't have been further from the truth as evidenced by Bush's next actions. He reloaded his gun and while Brisenia pleaded, please don't shoot me, he pointed the weapon at the nine-year-old and as callously as he dispensed with her father, shot Brisenia twice, killing her. Ford rushed back into the living room, not in response to hearing more gunshots, but to inform her accomplices to flee. Gina was still alive, frozen on the floor. Immediately after the intruders fled the scene, she dialed 911. But to her horror, Ford suddenly ran back into the home to retrieve a gun that had been left behind. Discovering Gina alive, Ford ran outside and reported this, shouting at the men to, quote, finish her off. In the 911 recording, later used as evidence in court, gunshots can be heard as Gina attempts to defend herself. Bush and Gaxiola re-entered the house, and Gina desperately tells the dispatcher, they're coming back in, they're coming back in. Bush had begun shooting at Gina, who had retrieved her husband's handgun, and now returned fire, screaming, get the fuck out of here, get the fuck out of here. A bullet struck Bush, who now made a hasty retreat. The trio regrouped at Albert Gaxiola's place. Gaxiola was given the assignment of returning to Flores' neighborhood to report if there was any response from the police. After arriving, he texted Ford, telling her cops were on the scene and warning her to keep a low profile. She responded to this text while tending to Bush's gunshot wounds. Now with little to do but waited out, Ford next texted her daughter saying, Whatever goes down, I'm in deep now. I love you, make me proud, and do something good with your life. Gina Gonzalez was taken to the University Medical Center in Tucson by ambulance. She would survive being shot multiple times. The bodies of her husband and daughter were transported to the medical examiner's office. An autopsy would determine that Raul Flores had been shot six times. Brisenia had been shot execution style, with two gunshots to the head. Burns around the edges of her wounds indicated that the weapon was fired at point-blank range. Early in the investigation, law enforcement received a tip identifying Oin Oakstar as a potential suspect. Oakstar was known to police as a drug dealer with an extensive criminal record. When his home was searched and firearms were discovered, Oakstar was taken into custody for violating probation. He was interrogated about the Flores home invasion, but initially refused to cooperate with investigators. However, through his association with Oakstar, Albert Gaxiola was also identified as a possible suspect. Two days after the murders, Pima County Sheriff's Department officers searched Gaxiola's residence and vehicle. They found bloodstains both inside and outside of the teal Astro van. In his residence, a camouflage shirt with the name Bush sewn on the front was found. Investigators got a warrant for Gaxiola's cell phone records and discovered numerous text messages to Shauna Ford. The messages had been sent around the time of the murders and appeared to implicate both Gaxiola and Ford in the crime. In one text sent to Ford at 1.33 a.m. on May 30th, Gaxiola writes, Cops on scene, lay low. 25 minutes later, Ford replies, No worries, all good, relax, competition gone. An hour later, Ford texts Gaxiola again asking, 
Can you stop and get a few rolls of gauze and compressed bandages? By this time, Ron Weedow, who had attended the meeting with Ford at the Colorado truck stop, learned about the double murder. He wasted no time in contacting the FBI, whose agents asked to wiretap his phone to record conversations between himself and Ford. In these recorded phone calls later played in court, Ron asked Ford directly about the murders. She flatly denies involvement, stating, I don't know shit about that. If the cops want to talk to me, they can call me. Ford didn't implicate herself in the murders during her calls with Weedow, but she admits to having carried out a few, quote, operations. She also let it slip that a buddy had taken two bullets in the leg on a recent mission. Investigators continued surveillance on their suspects, and on the afternoon of June 10, 2009, Detective Christopher Hogan finally learned the whereabouts of Shauna Ford. Albert Gaxiola and his girlfriend, Gina Moraga, visited Ford, who was staying in a North Tucson area motel. Officers began tailing her as well. The following day, Ford was followed as she drove to meet Gaxiola and Moraga at a home in Tucson. She was arrested by awaiting officers later that day at the motel. After seizing her cell phone, Detectives used it to text Gaxiola, asking him to meet her at a McDonald's near the motel. When Gaxiola arrived, he too was arrested. Officers searched Ford's vehicle and found jewelry that had been stolen from Gina Gonzalez during the home invasion. Shauna denied involvement in the murders. She claimed she'd been in Tucson or California on the night in question. When asked about Jason Bush, she told police that he was a, quote, stand-up guy, but denied being in contact with him recently. The last suspect taken into custody, Jason Bush, would almost immediately confess to his role in the Flores murders. Bush initially told Detective Juan Carlos Navarro that when the fatal shots were fired, he was positioned outside the Flores' home. He claimed he'd been shot in the leg when he entered the home to find out what had happened. But Detective Navarro knew Bush's account had some gaping holes. When he cornered Bush with evidence contradicting his version of events, including the 911 call, Bush admitted it was he and Ford who had first entered the Flores' home, identifying themselves as U.S. Border Patrol agents. Bush then provided details. He told investigators Ford had said the house would be empty and that the plan was to steal marijuana and cash. He said Albert Gaxiola told him to enter the residence first because he was unknown to Raul Flores. Bush said he felt pressured to shoot the family because Gaxiola threatened him, quote, it's them or you. Shauna Ford was charged with two counts of first-degree felony murder for the deaths of Raul and Versenia Flores and the attempted first-degree murder of Gina Gonzalez. She was also charged with numerous lesser counts of first-degree burglary, two counts of aggravated assault, armed robbery, and aggravated armed robbery. The two first-degree murder charges could be charged as capital crimes, making Ford eligible to receive the death penalty if convicted. Ford's trial finally began 18 months later on Thursday, January 25, 2011, in Pima County Superior Court. Judge John Leonardo presided. Prosecutor Rick Unclesbay presented a compelling case against Ford. Ron Weedow and his friend Bob Copley provided testimony about their meeting with the defendant in May of 2009. They both testified that Ford had solicited their help for a planned home invasion in Arivaca. 
A rough map drawn by Ford and provided to them was entered into evidence. It detailed the locations of homes Ford and her group were targeting for planned robberies, including the Flores residence. Scott Walton, a DNA analyst, testified that Shauna's DNA profile matched a partial DNA profile generated from a silver ring found in her purse when she was arrested. The ring was identified as the property of Gina Gonzalez. Text messages exchanged with Albert Gaxiola only further implicated Ford. The most damning one was a message sent just an hour after the murders, in which Gaxiola warns Ford to lay low, and she responds, all good. The prosecution's most powerful and compelling witness was Gina Gonzalez. She pointed to Shauna Ford in court, identifying her as the woman who entered her home and oversaw the murder of her husband and child. She described how, as she dialed 911, Ford re-entered the house, and seeing that she had survived, ran to order her assassins to finish her off. In his closing arguments, Uncles Bay emphasized Ford's responsibility for the murder, stating, quote, She didn't put a gun to Brisenia's head, but she was the one in charge. She's the one who planned the events. She's the one who recruited people to do this. Because of that, you must hold her accountable. The defense's strategy was to claim Ford hadn't been present when Raul Flores and his daughter were killed. Shauna's defense team told the jury that because Ford hadn't physically pulled the trigger, a verdict of not guilty was the only appropriate decision. Ford's history of childhood abuse and neglect was detailed for the court. Special Defense Investigator Margaret DeFrank described how the trauma Ford had experienced early in life left indelible scars on her psychological development, resulting in irreversible mental health issues. It was argued that this had resulted in Ford developing a fear of immigrants, associating them with terrorism, and a belief that they posed a real physical threat to her safety and the safety of all American citizens. The defense told the jury it was this irrational fear, born out of a life of abuse, that led the defendant to come up with her half-baked plan to rob immigrants, people she viewed as dangerous criminals, intent on destroying her country. They tried to make a case for Ford's, quote, good intentions, reminding the jury that it had been her plan to use the proceeds to fund her Minuteman group in order to stop dangerous people from entering the U.S. illegally. Kind of a racist Robin Hood, I guess. In conclusion, they stated that it was Ford's mental state, and not racism or hate, that kept their client from expressing remorse or offering an apology regarding the murders of Raul and Brisenia Flores as a result of her actions. It took the jury only a few hours of deliberation before reaching a verdict. However, one juror, Angela Thomas, later told KGUN-TV in Tucson that it was still a difficult decision. A photograph of Brasinia taken before the murders and presented during the trial was a significant factor in the jury's verdict, she said. While deliberating, Thomas said she reflected carefully on the horror of that day, stating, quote, A little girl with bright red fingernails. She's wearing a white t-shirt and turquoise-colored pajama bottoms. She's on a love seat. It's a perfect, innocent picture, until you realize half of her face has been blown off, end quote. On February 14, 2011, Shauna Ford was convicted of all eight charges against her, including two counts of capital murder. The jury listed three aggravating circumstances for Raul's murder and four for Bresenia's in their decision. Shauna Ford's attorney, Eric Larson, 
argued against the death penalty, citing, quote, mitigating circumstances sufficiently substantial to call for leniency. These factors included that Ford was, quote, at best, a minor participant in the murders. They claimed that she was manipulated by Albert Gaxiola and Oin Oakstar, who'd used their client's scheme to rob the victims as an excuse to commit murder for their own benefit. They also cited Shauna's troubled childhood, sexual and physical abuse, abandonment, and neuropsychological impairments stemming from a stroke she'd suffered in 1996 as additional mitigating factors. The verdict and sentence were delivered together. For each count of murder, the jury decided for death. For the non-capital convictions, Ford received an additional 75 years. The jury's recommendation of the death penalty was as a result of Ford's, quote, intention that the killing take place, and also that she was a major participant in the robbery or burglary and was recklessly indifferent regarding human life, end quote. Ford showed no emotion as she learned her fate. Judge John Leonardo ruled that the method of execution would be lethal injection. She was transported to the Arizona State Prison Complex in Perryville, where female death row inmates are housed. Now 55 years old, Ford is one of only three women on death row in Arizona today. In 2014, her appeal was rejected by the court. However, she was resentenced on the charges of armed and aggravated robbery to run concurrently. In April 2011, 37-year-old Jason Bush, Ford's co-conspirator, was also sentenced to death. He received an additional 78 years for other charges. Bush, who reportedly has ties to the white supremacist organization, the Aryan Nation, was later charged with the 2009 murder of a homeless man named Hector Lopez Partida. Bush appealed his sentence, but it was rejected in 2018. Albert Gaxiola was tried and found guilty for the Flores murders and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole, plus 54 years. Raul Flores and Gina Gonzalez's older daughter was 12 at the time her father and sister were murdered. Her life was spared because she decided to visit her grandmother on that fateful day. Today, she and her mother Gina reside in Arizona. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. To find out what I get up to all year long, follow me on social media. There are links to Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Did you know that Once Upon a Crime can also be found on YouTube? You can subscribe to our YouTube channel to listen to all our episodes and watch accompanying videos. If you have friends who love true crime but aren't podcast listeners, share our YouTube channel with them. Just look for Once Upon a Crime Podcast on YouTube. Make sure to hit the subscribe button, like and comment on the videos, and share them with others. It would really help us out. Thank you so much. Would you like to receive texts from Once Upon a Crime? You can opt in by texting OUAC to 408-676-1770. That's the letters OUAC to 408-676-1770. You'll receive texts alerting you to new episodes, special giveaways, true crime trivia, and more. The information is in the show notes, as well as on our website, truecrimepodcast.com. Text messaging is provided by textsanity.com. Text message rates may apply. Once Upon a Crime is produced and edited by me, Esther Sanchez Ludlow. My production and administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Research for this episode was provided by Emma Battaglia and was written by Gemma Harris. Until next time, be good to one another.